0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit SojournMontrose.org. I feel much like most weeks in this series that we have bit off a little bit more than we can chew in terms of the amount of content that we have here for us this morning, but we'll do our best to navigate it well and faithfully. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to Uh, go back to the podcast, this is absolutely a continuation of, of last week, because in this text, Paul continues what is his opening argument of the letter to the church in Galatia. This argument, which at its core was to make clear that the covenant of God with his people has always been dependent on faith that God has always primarily related to his people through faith as opposed to through works. And last week what we saw is that Paul began his argument with two different proofs. A proof from the experience of the Galatians, appealing to them to remember that in their entire lives of law-keeping, the Spirit did not come because of their law-keeping, but rather it came when they heard the gospel with faith that it was in that moment that the Spirit was experienced. And the second proof was an appeal to their own Scripture, right? To the Word of God in the promise to Abraham, which was also given in such a way that it required nothing from Abraham other than faith. And he quotes the Old Testament when he says that Abraham believed that he had faith and that it was that faith that was credited to him as righteousness. And so today he'll continue that by appealing to a human example, to human reason, to something that we can see and relate to in what is essentially a a simile, a comparison of two different things that share some characteristics. And so this is where Paul begins in verse 15. It says, "...to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ." This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make that promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. I don't think we really need a a ton of explanation here as to what Paul's getting at, but essentially what Paul says is that in a human covenant, No one annuls that covenant or adds to it once it has been ratified. And so he makes the case that if that is the reality of faithful relationship between humans, that it is also the reality of faithful relationship between God and man. That if God were to make a promise to us and then choose later on to either annul or amend that promise in such a way that it negates it, or that it so drastically changes it that it no longer looks the same, then God would be unfaithful. It would be like buying a house today and 30 years later, the owner canceling or requiring further payment than what was originally agreed upon. It wouldn't make sense. And so Paul is making it clear for us that this relationship between the law and the promise, although nuanced and difficult, they are not at odds with one another. That they're not competing to provide for us the same thing. And that's why he goes on to say that God does not, in fact, annul his relationship with his people through faith by giving us the law. Meaning that the covenant of faith isn't dead and void because God gives Israel the law. If it were then God's faithfulness would be brought into question. And what we can know is that God, by His very nature, is faithful. We say this regularly here, right? That what God decrees comes to pass. That what He promises, He intends to fulfill. And so we can expect Him to act faithfully because it's who He is. And so if He has made a promise, He will indeed fulfill that promise. And so in the giving of the law, 430 years after the promise that was made to Abraham, that promise is not annulled, nor is it amended. God, in giving the law, doesn't add to the covenant of faith. And so this is what we have to know, right? We, again, we just barely kind of touched on this relationship between the law and the promise. And this week, Paul explains it much more fully. And he begins with, helping us to understand that this is not like a new terms of service agreement, right? It's those things that you never click, like you never actually read, but you always click I agree on with iTunes every year, that they like promise to surveil you more and, uh, you know, essentially uh, take all of your personal data, um, which we just sign away willingly. so, So it's not that. It's not an amended contract, right? This is not an addendum The law is not an addendum to God's promise to relate to His people primarily through faith. And so that that should bring us to this question that Paul asks in verse 19, which is, why then the law, right? If we know, number one, that God still plans to keep His promise to relate to His people through faith, but that he has also given us the law, then we can know that the law is both good and necessary, and yet it does not serve the same purpose as the promise. And so what role does the law play specifically within this promise? Paul explains in verse 19 as he continues. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So why then the law? Paul gives us a very simple answer. Because of sin. Because of sin. And so what Paul is telling us is that the law was given in order to curb sin until the one to whom the promise was made would come. In that sense, Paul will go on to say that the law serves as a guardian, keeping watch over us. Think of it like this. Think of it like the rules in your parents' house. Right? As long as you're under my roof, young man, young woman. We've all heard that one, right? Fill in the blank. Whatever your house rule. Ours was always, don't talk back. That was like the, the one rule. Those rules didn't change me at a at a heart level, but they did they did curb my disobedience. Now because I'm sinful, it just meant I got more crafty in my sin, right? It just meant, well, I don't have to tell them that I did this, right? It just meant I couldn't be as brazen, as open but those rules did serve a purpose. They helped to limit the disorder in our household. They helped to curb that which would cause relational strife between me and the rest of my family. God's law, like our household rules, reveals to God's children not only something of who He is, but primarily reveals to us that the law is intended to curb sin and keep it from escalating. That's the point of what Paul's saying here. And yet, ironically, the law has another effect on God's people. And that is not only to curb sin, to restrain sin, but also to reveal it, to show us clearly when we are in sin. In fact, Paul says in another place that if I had not known the law, I would not have known what sin was. And so here we have this twofold answer to what is the purpose of the law to restrain us from sin and to reveal it when we are in sin. And so, although we primarily relate to God through faith, there is something that He would have us to be guarded by this gracious giving of the law. In giving it to us, God reveals to us the subtlety and the power of sin, and this is what makes the giving of the law good beyond the fact that everything God creates is good and is a good thing as such. So again, like we said last week, right, the problem is not that the law is bad, The problem is rather that good things can become bad when we use them for something they were never intended to do. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, A handsaw is a good thing, but not to shave with. A handsaw is a good thing, but not to shave with. To use Spurgeon's formula in this situation, God's law is a good thing, but not to justify with. It's... It's good, but it is not good if it is our primary means of relating to God. At that point, it it fails to meet that purpose because it was never intended to do that in the first place. And that's why Paul says this in verse 21. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, right? So again, we're tempted because of our historic simple understanding of promise and law or grace and law to think that they are at odds with one another but they're not and here's why they're promising to us two different things there is never a moment in which the law was given in order to promise us life it wasn't given for that reason it was given to restrain and reveal not to give life and so that means that the promise of God, which is the promise to give life, is not at odds with the law that promises to restrain and reveal. Rather, the promise is served by this law. They're operating together. You see what I mean? So this is not like, okay, I can buy this car from this brand, or this car from this brand, both promise to get me the same place, both promise to do the same things, both promise to get me there efficiently and with as little trouble as possible, and now I I get to choose which one, right? The promise isn't saying, here's the way to life, and the law isn't also saying, here's another way to life. You pick which one you want. They're saying two different things, and so they're not contrary to one another, is what Paul says, For if a law had been given that could give life, continuing in verse 21, the righteousness, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so again, the promise not contingent upon the law, the law serving the promise. And so what we need to know this morning, brothers and sisters, is that the law, while good, cannot provide us with the heart level change that we need. Right? So the the law can tell us how to channel our desires in a way that honors God. But it cannot, it cannot give to us God honoring desires. Does that make sense? It can tell us how to channel our desires in ways that honor God, but it cannot give us God-honoring desires. We need a new heart for that. And so in the same way that God was gracious in giving us the law, He's gracious in giving us a means by which our hearts can, in fact, be changed. And that is through faith in Jesus, as He continues in verse 24. So then... So again, it's not in adherence to the law that life is found, but rather in being incorporated into Christ. Let's not read over these words too quickly. Paul is telling us that we are in Christ, meaning we are so incorporated into Him, that we are so united to Him in in a mysterious way that it, it is almost as if we are one. That we have died, that the old is gone, that the new has come, that the life we now live is not ours but Christ in us and us in Christ. And that that is where life is found, in, in Him. And so to be clear, what does Paul say? That if life is to be found in being incorporated into Christ and in being so united to Him, How is it that we become united to Him? He says, through faith, by faith. And so faith is what unites us to Christ and all of His saving benefits. It's because we are in Him that we are also given this immediate benefit that Paul references. This status as a child of God, one of God's own sons, one of God's own daughters by virtue of our incorporation into Christ, our union with Him. And Paul uses a a sacrament to make this wonderful reality concrete for us. He points us to a, a concrete Christian practice, right? The practice of baptism. He says, as many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's our new adornment. We've laid aside that which was old in us, our old self, our old identity, our old way of life, and we have put on a new person who is our new identity. I'm so glad we get to witness it this morning so that we can be reminded that we were buried with Christ in the likeness of His death, that we were raised to walk in newness of life. And that that comes to us by virtue of the promise that we receive when we are incorporated in him to whom the promise was given. That is Jesus. And so this passage moves from incorporation into Christ through faith to receiving a new identity by virtue of that incorporation. By virtue of that uniting which is why we arrive at verse 28 and 29. And it says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so when we are incorporated Into Christ by faith, we receive a new identity that is so strong, that is so defining, that is so singular, that these age old distinctions, these distinctions that have separated us not just for recent history, but for all of history, become nothing. They're no longer barriers to sharing in Christ. Or to sharing in Christ with one another. They're no longer barriers to becoming part of his people, to becoming part of his body, to becoming part of his church. And now let me be clear, because I think sometimes this particular set of verses is misunderstood. It's misunderstood to paint this vision of almost an androgynous society where there is no defining or distinct characteristics where we're homogenous. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. Paul is not saying that our distinctions are magically erased in Christ. Rather, what he is saying is that these distinctions exist and are both radically and beautifully subordinated to who we are now in Christ. That Christ is the decisive thing about us. Not that we're Jew, not that we're Greek, not that we're slave, not that we're free, not even that we're male or that we're female, but that we are in Christ. And so unity in the church is not the erasure of distinction. It's not to erase that which makes us different, rather it is to live into our differences knowing that we have a greater unity, a unity that surpasses any of those potential distinctions. And that that unity is given to us by virtue of our incorporation into Christ, joined inextricably, united to Him by the grace of God. And so God's kingdom, make no mistake, is not homogenous in any way other than that we all belong to Christ. And so brothers and sisters, I hope what we see here is a compelling reality that it's only in and through the gospel that we have a basis for this kind of community. This kind of radically reconciled, radically different, and yet radically subordinated to Jesus' community of people. That it's only in our union with Him that we have this ability. that we would see and believe and understand that it is that that where you sit right now is the only place on earth. And I mean in the context of the church, not like this room. But it is the only place on earth where this is possible. Because it requires that something that we can't fundamentally provide for ourselves. And here's what I mean by that. This text could not be more timely (laughs) because it reminds us of where our hope lies in light of events like Charlottesville. Here's the reality. Just like the law could not legislate righteousness in us, we cannot legislate racism away. As much as I would love to say that repealing Jim Crow, banning laws prohibiting interracial marriage, passing the Civil Rights Act, and more have made racism a thing of the past, it's clear that that is not the case. For all of our progressive virtue, right? It's not the case. We can't say that, not with any kind of serious accounting of our recent history or even yesterday's immediate present. And so while those good and just laws have helped to curb the evil of racism in some ways, it has not changed the hearts of the people in our country. And so I don't know about you, but for me, that produces a feeling, a real sense of futility, of frustration and right anger. And so if you're feeling those with me, I don't think those feelings are anything to be ashamed of. They are the right response to what is a truly futile and frustrating reality. But those feelings are not meant to drive us to write more and better laws. Not as Christians. That is meant to send us somewhere other than the law because the law does not change us at our core. Not the law that was given to Moses, nor the laws that we write for ourselves. It restrains us, but it won't make us righteous. Now let me be clear. This is not to say that we shouldn't pass good laws in an attempt to restrain and reveal evil. But if we're depending on these laws that we pass to change hearts, then we are on a fool's errand with the rest of our country. And this is why it's so vital that we declare and demonstrate the reconciling power of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is why in this moment, the church must stand tall and hold out before our neighbors the gospel of a kingdom in which our diversity is truly united. And here's the reality the desire to depend on legislation to achieve what we want in our country today is a fault of both sides. That is what both liberal and conservative are promising you, right? If you put us in power, we'll make the laws in such a way that these things that you perceive to be evil will go away. And we can debate about the merits of those different issues and which sides of those issues liberal and conservative fall on. But let us always remember, brothers and sisters, that the hope of the church does not lie there. And unfortunately, it all too often has. That's why some people were willing to compromise pretty greatly on the character of a particular man who resides in office right now. Because we were promised a legislative hope that has no power to deliver upon it. And so we must demonstrate and declare this gospel. We must show that where the law fails, the gospel prevails. Where the law cannot undo our racism and racist history, the gospel can. We cannot sit in silence hoping that this will pass like we have so often done in our past, myself included. And let me be very clear for those that would accuse me this morning of being political. For the church, this is not an issue of politics or of free speech. This is an issue of evil and the gospel that defeats it. And that is why it is even more heinous and an even more insidious thing that the church in our country remains segregated. Because we are the only place where the real power for hearts to be changed and peoples to be reconciled into true and everlasting unity exists, and yet we fail to live into the reality of that power. Reconciliation, brothers and sisters, does not start outside of the church. It starts inside the church. It starts with you and it starts with me. It starts with us because it is to us that the power of God for salvation and the spirit of God for reconciliation have been given. And so let me say this clearly and unequivocally, if you are a white supremacist, an alt-right apologist, or a racist, then you have no place in this church without deep, immediate, and ongoing repentance. Your sin is heinous, grievous to God, and an affront to the image of God in every human being of every race, ethnicity, or gender, from the womb to the tomb. This is not a place where you will be allowed to hang on to that sin or to perpetuate that evil heresy in silence. This is a place where, by God's grace, through union with Christ, your heart can be changed, and you can be reconciled to your brothers and sisters of every race, race, ethnicity, and gender. And we are praying to that end with you. And here's where I want to end with a word to those of us in the room who are racial or ethnic minorities. Let me acknowledge that even this morning there can be frustration with what I am saying. Because you have long suffered and lived this reality every day. Not just Charlottesville days. Every single day. And my hope and my prayer this morning, brothers and sisters, is that that you would let the water of the word wash over you. That it would be a comforting balm for that wound which you carry. That it would be a warm blanket in the freezing cold. That you would be comforted in the knowledge that you, brother or sister, are an heir according to the promise. And the contents of that promise brother or sister, is astounding. In the letter to the church at Galatia, he promises that within this promise is contained access to the kingdom of God. That this promise that God has given to you as an heir contains eternal life. That it contains a new creation that is yet to come, that is far more wonderful and glorious than the one that you find yourself in. In the letter to the church in Rome, Paul says that you will inherit the world and everything in it. In the book of Hebrews, he tells you that the inheritance that you have is a city that is to come, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, or in chapter 11, verse 16, a better country that is a heavenly one. And so where this country has really and truly and perpetually and continually let you down, the country that is to come has not and will not. Because he has promised it. And it's the book of Revelation that brings this biblical promise to a crescendo with its vision of a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is what God long ago promised to Abraham and to his offspring, which you are by virtue of your incorporation into Christ. And within that promise is the promise of a curse that is reversed, a restoration of a fallen and broken humanity and the renewal of a whole creation for God's glory and for your joy. And in that place, to be an heir is to belong there. And in that place, to have your tears wiped away personally, by the Son of God Himself, Jesus. Never to be remembered again. This is yours this morning in Christ. It belongs to you. Hold fast to Him and trust Him because He's promised you And so hear me say this. We weep with you. We mourn with you, and yet not as those without hope. Because this inheritance that God has promised to you is an inheritance that Peter tells us is in a place where no moth can destroy and no thief can steal because it is being guarded by the very power of God himself. And so I pray that that reality and the God of that promise, of that covenant, that he has established with you through Jesus, would be near to you this morning, comfort you in your sorrow, and that we, as your brothers and sisters, might walk this road with you. By God's grace and through the power of the Spirit, may it be so. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning that you have chosen in your sovereign will and in your glorious grace to relate through us through faith. Because, Lord, if the law brought life, we would all suffer under death. Because so we can't keep it. The law is not sufficient to change us at our core. And so, Lord, you brought jesus to give us a new heart to give us his heart to incorporate us into his reality into his kingdom into his inheritance and that is entirely and utterly apart from us and so we give you praise for that grace and we confess our dependence upon you this morning we confess it in the taking of the sacrament acknowledging that we need to be sustained by your broken body by your shed blood on our behalf And Lord, we confess that we not only need your sustenance in terms of our spiritual relationship before you and with you, but also, Lord, in our relationship to the world around us, that we need your spirit, Lord, to instruct us, to show us where we must repent, to show us where we must name the evils that are around us, to show us how we we might act wisely in pursuing the reconciliation of all peoples for your fame and glory and for our great joy. And thank you, Lord, that we have a promise that delivers us to a place where that is real, where there is no law that is required because the heart transplant has been given to everyone. We look forward to that day with great hope. We weep knowing that it's not here, but we weep with the knowledge that you do not tarry as some might think you tarry, but you are coming And you are coming quickly, and we pray that you would. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.